This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. card carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio Sirius XM Channel 132 every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Guys, I'm curious. haven't seen you in a little bit. What, what's on your mind? What's caught your eye in the world of sports? Well, I guess the two big events, we could talk about them any order you sure. want, would be obviously the national championship game. The college national championship game was one. Which I watched almost all of it. Very proud to say, first time. Well, why don't we start with that one? So let me just say an interesting fact. And actually, I have Adi to thank for this. And you, obviously, as well. Mm-hmm. Massey Peabody Very is much. Us, not indirectly, but directly. <laughs> so just so everyone knows, so about uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Monday, the game was being played on Monday night. Uh, Adi sends me a note, and sends all of us a note. Or uh, You either send me an email or a text message that says, there seems to be kind of a mispriced anomaly on this game, which is the Massey Peabody system and ESPN FPI, etc., are all predicting that Alabama is going to win the game, but maybe a 55 to 45 type of odds. Or less, actually. Or even less. 52, 53. Yeah. Now, the problem is, so I contacted, I'll just call it a person I know, who said, um, you can bet on this game, and for every $100 you bet on Clemson, you can win $200. Which is higher than what I was getting. You were getting 185, uh, but I'm thinking, wait a second. The statistical models are saying 52, 53. The betting line is saying 2 to 1. This is a tremendously mispriced opportunity, and so let's conceptually, I may have bet on Clemson, but not because I necessarily thought they were going to win the game. I had to do it out of Wharton Moneyball principle. I had to. <laughs> exactly. Which was there. And actually, I mean, to, to what got my attention was was not so much that there was a mispricing. We see misprices, but I don't think I've seen a misprice that big and certainly not a game this large and at the, at the, at the center. So I think we've seen maybe 15, plus 15, and maybe, maybe you have like plus 20. Uh, uh, so you right. see a gap there, which actually is, technically speaking, you can capitalize enormously on that, but then you're capitalizing on the differences in sort of smaller probabilities, 5% versus 15% or 10%, which is actually quite profitable, but you just don't see them, and, you, and it depends on the but lines you're getting. You need a bunch yeah. of them, really. You need profitable. a bunch of them to really... And so I've never seen that big a margin, like, right at the at the, at the the peak of yeah. the normal curve. So, okay, yeah. just for our <laughs> listeners here, what would be the implied lines between, like, 52-48 versus 67-33, 2 to 1 versus... Versus, like, let's imagine the betting line. You know, we one got ten paid, to one ten to one hundred is uh, fifty two point five. So how I'm saying minus one ten is fifty two point five. He's saying what's the line going to be? So the line's going to be plus like, plus one or, minus oh, plus one one. or something. Yeah, and then two to one would had to have been plus it's seven. About or, plus it's about plus six. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so there was about a five to six point misprice. Yeah. Mis- Let's call it arbitrage opportunity. Yeah, we, edge, edge, edge is the edge. word you want there. I so think, that's yeah. very significant. It, it is. It is. That would I'm, be a, that would definitely be a pick in the Massey Peabody world. And Adi's right that you just don't. The thing is, you do see the edges like that in college football, but you don't usually see them at the top of the rankings. So I have. I think mm-hmm. I have a reason why. I, I came up with a thought about it. I'm interested to hear your guys' thought. People say I, I'm going to make a claim. And you guys talk about this all the time, but in somewhat a different context. It's because of sample size. Now people say, "Well, what do you mean?" 
they played 14 other games or 13 other games. No. They played meaningless games that would not inform us about what happens at the right tail of the distribution. So Clemson beating some bad ACC team does not help me predict how they're going to play against Alabama. So Clemson really, except for maybe you could argue against Notre Dame, hadn't really played the elite competition. So my claim is while they had played lots of games, they don't they're not that informative about how they might play against the really top team. I, I understand the argument. That's and, an argument. And, and, I, I could see against it too. I mean that's what statistical models do. Statistical models are trying to make that extrapolation. That's the thing. And I mean you you, you could ask it empirically because it, it ultimately there's enough data to answer that question. And the best we can tell it's not a very good argument. And we hear it a lot, and it's reasonable. But the best we can tell, it's not a very good argument that, in fact, you can tell a lot about a team, even against lesser competition. And Clemson this year is a good example because they didn't have much competition. But with a few exceptions, especially early in the year before they went to their freshman quarterback, with a few exceptions, they dominated this year in a way that usually is indicative of of a very good team. Okay, so no. the only reason I was going to bring it up is, you know, generally we talk in the statistics world about, you know, extrapolating outside the range of data. And the interpretation right. here would be they've only played teams with, let's call them strength parameters, within a narrower range. Alabama clearly is outside that range. So we can make predictions, but as per what happened in the game, there's a lot of uncertainty, more so. So that doesn't mean you can't make the prediction. It just means that there no, might be I, I larger think, uncertainty. The two course. things that went on here, I think the game grades and the, the, the actual statistical analysis of the entire season essentially rated Clemson and Alabama as equal, with Alabama maybe a tiny bit better going into the game, certainly. But the can public... I just, can, I just, can I just clarify yeah. that a little bit? So that's not just Massey Peabody. One of the things no, that sure. was striking about this particular game is that there were other models that were right there with us, and 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 big models. So ESPN's FPI, mm-hmm. which we always laud as the best alternative to us, and and very similar to us, was right with us. So maybe that's not very surprising. But then Bill Connolly's S and P Plus, which is a very good model as well, but uh, quite different from ours, said the same was, thing. Said the same thing. It was it's, a trifecta. When you start getting models that actually approach things differently, reaching the same conclusion, you get more confidence in what it's Abs- saying. Absolutely. But I, I, no, but I just wanted both that, of your opinions, just for our listeners. A lot of people saying, so if they're playing weaker competition, how can you make that extrapolation? I'm just saying it would be great to hear from both of you, because I'm sure our listeners are wondering, well, well if they I didn't think, play any competition, how, do, how can we make any forecast about how they well, do against Well, first of all, I think Alabama? you can make information, because there's lots of repetitions in a football game, and you're, you're getting a lot of, lot of plays, and that just produces information. If you learn how to use it, how to downweight it and integrate it, I think it's valuable. Exactly. And this is, this is what we do. And we, for example, we, don't, we downweight plays when games get out of hand. So we're not inferring much when, you know, for Clemson in second half games or Alabama second half games. And ultimately, it's an empirical question. You can ask, look, we've seen lots of teams do this over the years, and then they play a better opponent. What can we learn from the from the earlier games uh, in, uh, that's going to predict their play against a better? Can you learn anything? And in fact, you can. Now, there are always exceptions. You can always tell stories. So I think the better story, the better application here is Alabama, because Alabama hadn't played a team this year that could do some things that Clemson could do. So Georgia would have been the closest, and you know we could make an easy argument. Georgia was winning that game right. and one play away from actually winning that game. That's right. Georgia gave them a, a real run. They could have easily. I mean, football. Easy. I mean, football things happen, so they could have easily won that game. But for example, they don't, the defensive line in Alabama had disrupted 
every team that played. And there wasn't a team that could hold up against them. Clemson's offensive line held up very well. Zero the, sacks. The consequence of that is it put pressure on the back seven, and especially that young defensive backfield. They hadn't faced any real pressure all year. They Did you know that Alabama graduated or lost the top six defensive backs from last year's team. The I only knew six. it when I listened it listened to it during the game. So it's it's I mean you it's amazing that they did as well as they did given that they had that kind of loss in their pass defense. But they they covered it up essentially because of that incredible defensive line, and they didn't play a team whose offensive line could hold them back long enough to stress the defensive backs. Well, Clemson's could, and so that's that's an example. At least it's a story and it's an anecdote where your theory goes through. They hadn't played the right level of competition to really find out whether they were good enough. What was interesting about seven or eight minutes into the game, which there was already a massive amount of scoring seven or eight minutes into the game, was this is how I saw the game going. On the one hand, the good news for Alabama seven or eight minutes in was they were able to pretty much run the ball at will. So their offensive line, at least early on in the game, was able to impose their will on Clemson's defensive line. But the part that I was feeling optimistic about, obviously Clemson was leading, but not by much, I was optimistic about was... Clemson was Clemson's offensive line was able to give as much time as the quarterback needed to throw the football. And that's when I started to say, boy, I wonder which style of play is going to win this game. Is it going to be the running attack of Alabama, maybe grind out the clock? And for some reason, all of a sudden, Alabama went away, despite them gaining seven or eight yards on every running play. For some unknown reason, they started to say, hey, we've got Tua. Let's start throwing the ball. And that actually, I think, I actually don't think, I mean, it's easy to say in retrospect, I'm not sure whoever the offensive coordinator is for Alabama, I'm not sure he called a great game, given what I saw early on in the game and what I think would have been a better game plan for them. Well, you know, the first half of the game was essentially even, and the, the second half of the game broke open. And, well, and and even, but even statistically, it was less even. I mean, if you, if you, Alabama won the first half well, of the game. Right, so this is something that, that Rufus, Cade's uh, 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 partner, tweeted, which was very interesting. He, he tweeted out that his game grade, which is a secret sauce that I guess Cade knows, but, but we don't know necessarily what's in it, doesn't include the three attributes that essentially separated Clemson from Alabama in the second half, which are performance in high leverage plays, third and fourth down, turnovers, and finally um, explosive plays, what he, you know, these big yardage uh, breakthroughs. Um, and so, and so that, that's what those three attributes in particular really drove Clemson and separated them from, from Alabama. And he said, in the game grades, we don't include them. And so we, we, treat, we saw the game as almost equal. And I, I, I responded, I said, it's amazing that those three factors are not in your 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 game grade, and I, I knew. I mean, I kind of knew why. I mean, he, he responded by saying, "Well, they just don't forecast," and that, of course, is is the observation. And I think that's amazing. And 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 I guess you're asking me to lead a question to you guys: is, Do you think that's true? Do you think they really don't forecast? <laughs> do I, mean, I think it's? I mean, just because you can't. But this is interesting. Just because you haven't been able to find evidence for it, um, and, and it hasn't helped, doesn't okay, mean it's so, not there. Okay, so. T- to be clear, let's talk about – this is great. This is a great question about football modeling in general. So you said three things, uh, turnovers, third downs, and red zone. And explosive. And explosive. Yeah. Explosive. And you could say – You could four. say right, right, this is all, this is all red zone. Red zone is pretty good too. I love that you've got four. So now we've got yeah. four. Good. Okay, so we've got four. And it's not that we don't have them in the model at all. That's that's okay. So, he, so, he, so, so that was all right. So that wasn't clear to me. Okay, they are there. Sure, but the question is, how much do they weigh? And what's true about all four of those things is that they have a huge impact on who wins the game. 
Yeah. We, we, we know this. <laughs> we, yes, that's I true. I mean, coaches for yeah, decades yeah. have said, well, win the turnover battle, you know, and, yeah. you know, and, and that's true. But that doesn't necessarily mean that a team's performance on those dimensions will persist from game to game. And so, therefore, what they do in one game is not necessarily predictive of what they're going to do the next week, which is what we care about. Yes. All that you care about is can you look at the past and tell us something about what's so going to happen me, in the future. So let me expand on what Cade's saying. We face this problem in marketing all the time. And let me let me make the analogy. Since we're a sports statistics and yep, business yep. show, here's the problem. I prove to you that advertising drives sales. Great. I think most people believe advertising can drive sales. But to make a future forecast then, I don't have the advertising data. So I need to be able to forecast the X to be able to generate the Y. And what you just said, if I heard you correctly, was turnovers, of course, predicts Outcomes, But I can't predict the turnovers. So I can't predict to get what we call in statistics the predictive distribution. I need to be able to predict X. And if if that's not predictable, you can't use it. If that's not predictable, it's hard to use. And we face that problem in marketing all the time. So I think at this point in time, many people understand that that applies for turnovers in football. But some of the others that we've just talked about. Converting on third down, like situational football. Explosive yeah. plays. Down. Explosive plays. Let's take explosive plays. So let me just say that we've looked hard at all of these things. All right? and <laughs> by the way, Red Zone, we, we've, we've had in there in some way. I mean, all of these come in in some way. They just come in with a different stat. Yeah. But then also they get weighed. They're collinear their, with other things you That's measure. right. And this is a very important one for explosive. So let's take explosive because this is actually controversial. And this is a dimension that clearly teams very on mm-hmm. Clemson yes. has these huge plays yes. where Alabama I mean they had some big plays but they were also just getting chunked they were there for a while in the second quarter they were running 10 yards a pop running for 10 yards a pop that is usually very indicative of a team that's going to do well as Eric says that stuff matters <laughs> that stuff persists I mean they probably could have kept yeah. doing that at any rate but here's the question do explosive if should you have explosive plays in your model if you're trying to understand a team's future performance and our answer definitively is no shockingly it's no it is shocking and and the here and it's not it's no completely or no or in l2 regression sense you shrink it down to very small or in l1 sense they're gone it's no but it's because we have another stat in there that that obviates it essentially Mm -hmm. so play success is one of the most understood and, and commonly adopted now stat, which is are you are you moving the chains? Are you staying ahead of That's the chains? That's exactly the opposite of explosion. It is the opposite of explosion. But once you have play success in there, explosiveness adds no marginal predictive well, value. No, it's, it's, be, it's I'm, plus I'm on, emphasizing two yeah, things. No marginal yeah. predictive mm-hmm. beyond success. So let me ask you a question just for you, Adi. The play that Clemson scored a touchdown on, I think it was a 74-yard touchdown to Ross, I think was the receiver's name, where the guy in Alabama slipped, ended up hurting himself, but then he... Is that an explosive play? I think so. But Absolutely. What, no, 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 the, this is the no, problem. No, but no, but here's the issue. That was a seven-yard pass. Where the guy, this wasn't a 50 yard. No, I'm just yeah, asking yeah. you how you would code that's that. That's the point. That he would code that as an explosive okay, play. But and he doesn't no, no. See, that, the no, point it would, I'm be, a, trying it would to, be a play success. It would be a successful play. And it would, it would be included in the denominator of the play success, but it wouldn't get any extra credit for being this large. No, I was just model. asking the question because what a team can control is their strategy. So, for example, if you told me that a team chooses to throw lots of 40 yard plus passes and that leads to great success, that a coach can control by calling lots of 40-yard plays. You can't call a play that says 
Alabama guy, hurt yourself and fall down six, two yards from the line of scrimmage, and you guy, you break that for 70 yards. Okay, it raises an interesting question because Adi's first challenge to this whole bundle of, cat, of plays, which is a bundle of stats, which is seemingly important but not predictive, is is it not predictive or are you just not measuring it right? And one of the things Eric is kind of suggesting is actually maybe if you measured explosive plays better, they would come through. Because Eric's point is if you throw a little flare here, that's a six-yard pass, but it happens to go for 80. Maybe that shouldn't count as explosive. Now, on the other hand, I mean, great. It's an empirical question. But you could argue, I don't know, maybe there there are lots of offenses that are built around these little receivers who give them an opening early. They can make a lot with it. But it's fundamentally an empirical question. So I can tell you. We're not satisfied because it's been a few years since we've done it and data get better and we get smarter. But we've gone through in the past and looked, cutting it lots of different ways. And we have not been able to find a way to cut it that leaves explosive plays predictive of future performance. This is huge. Now, let me um, make an analogy. Let me just say, again, beyond play success. Of course, of course. So this is very sounds very analogous to something that was transformative in the baseball world um, probably about 15 years ago. There's a guy named Voris McCracken, and he discovered – almost by accident, that the batting average on balls put in play, so just restrict, almost like play success here, what you're looking at, look at balls that have been hit, so you didn't walk, you didn't hit it out of the park, and you didn't strike out, so they've been put into play. I love this. Look at the batting average, the success, the play success on those balls, and and correlate them for pitchers one year over the next. And guess what he finds? Zip. No, nothing. <laughs> and so basically what he did, what he concluded is that this huge component of pitcher actual performance on the field success, turns out the batting average on balls of play is highly important to having a very low ERA over the season, is random. Mm-hmm. And that you should dis, just detach a valuation of That's a... That's a great it's, analogy. It's a great, uh, you just detach it from an evaluation of a pitcher and simply use their walks their strikeouts, and their home runs. And that's created what they call FIP, or Fielding Independent Pitching. And you've done that. You guys have done that for football. <laughs> well, it's, and, and not to be fair, not just, not I, just I us. I do want but, to get but, to the sequel, though. But but, but it's, it's, it's a nice connection. And, of course, baseball, of course, baseball analytics is in front of anybody else because that's a, that's a great observation. By the way, Wharton Moneyball, Cade Messi, hosting this morning with Audie Weiner and Eric Bradley. You guys can jump in here. 1-844-WHARTON, one 942-7866. Shane is not with us this morning, but he's going to be back next week. You had a sequel. I do. So the sequel is is that it turns out that FIP or, or fielding independent pitching or, and batting average in balls of play is uncorrelated for almost for most of the pitchers, the vast majority. But there are a few, and almost you can analogize this with teams in football, there are a few for which it is highly predictive one okay. year over the next. Okay. And, and as they started to look more closely at what, what was discovered, they realized there were these exceptions. And you can almost guess the, who they are. So hold on, how do you establish that? That's really it well. Seems what happens is basically you notice it over a career. So it takes a career. So it though. takes. So once you look back over a career and you look at, at at these pitchers who year after year had these ridiculously low batting average on balls in play, and also okay, you used your eyes I'll and you be, and you noticed. So I'll tell you. Once you realize who they are, you you'll realize who they are. I have two guesses. So you want to make a guess uh, who these pitchers? What? Well, one is a category and one is an individual. But what's the category? I was going to say pitchers with, you know, great location, sinker ball pitchers. So I was going to guess someone like a Greg Maddox. I was going to guess maybe someone like Clayton Kershaw, someone in, someone of that ilk. So you're moving in the right direction because these, these sort of ground ballish pitchers, uh, Correct. they do have, a, they do have a, a, of a tendency, but, uh, but not so much. The pronounced effect actually was knuckleballers. And you can almost, wow. you can almost figure out why. <laughs> because when you do make contact, it's, it's crappy. 
Okay. And so just putting a little so like a ball Tim Wake so, field yeah. or so by, by the way now mm-hmm. we've got exit velocity in baseball Absolutely. that would allow you to to find a a, a better measure that's right. that's going to differentiate. So all this is now in the past and now they're all moving towards these stat cast exit okay. velocity spin rate um they have these they have hard hit ball rates barrels b- balls hit on the barrel yeah, yeah, and these yeah. are now replacing everything is, and you can obviously you can get that for you can use those to assess both the hitters and the pitchers the pitchers for which those things are low exactly yeah. i like the point that you made earlier cade which is um i think it's an important point for our listeners is one possibility you brought up is that the effect exists but it's small or the other possibility is we're just not measuring it right i Absolutely. like those two separate ideas because it could or be modeling it right or modeling it right could That's be right. another possibility right. but i think I tend to think that, you know, I guess the hope of data analytics and all this technology we have is better measurement of phenomenon is going to lead to better identification of phenomenon. That's the hope, is that the better data will uncover that side of it. Let me just, I think it's key that we recognize, in order to do that, because it ought to go that way, but an impediment there is if you think you got more than you got. You think your model's better than it is. You got to recognize this, a model's flawed. I mean, these things are always wrong. You can always make them better. I'll tell you what's shocking is that we've been talking for 20 minutes. We haven't even talked about the word double doink yet. <laughs> double doink? We haven't talked That's about the Eagles. <laughs> we haven't gotten to the pro side of the slate. We're talking. Let me give you one other thing on college football before we do that, though. So I think this is, helps us get back a little more of the intuition for uh, what happened in that game. If, if they were going to play this Monday night. That's a good question. What would what, the odds what, be? What would you put the line? Or another way to put it, was, if they're going to play 10 times. What do you think? Well, let me just ask you: Has Massey Peabody been rerun since that game? Not that I know of. Okay, so there's nothing to bet on. It season's over. But but <laughs> well, we can tell the game grade is is Clemson's ha- two, the game grade was Clemson two points better, so it's going to barely move the data. It's going to Massey so Peabody's going to make them. Even. I think if I had to do it, I would say fifty fifty going forward. Which is I what would, it was before. I would probably, but now the public's convinced too. So I would probably make just because of stylistically what I saw, and I think back to Cade's point, the. Uh, it's clear if the Alabama defensive line cannot get pressure on Clemson quarterback, Clemson's going to do the same thing again. And so I would, I said if. Yeah, now, of yeah, course, yeah. Saban has observed what's happened right. in the game, That's and right. Saban's going to change what he does. Yeah. I would put Clemson as a slight favorite, but maybe in the one to two, three points or less favorite. So, I'm trying to remember. I wasn't paying enough attention to this as we went through. Was Alabama bringing much pressure? So they weren't getting much with their down four. Why didn't they bring – and their, and their defensive backs weren't holding up. Shouldn't they have brought more pressure on Lawrence? Well, this gets back to, in some sense, do you want to die by the deaths of a thousand knives or do you want to die by, you know, the swift hammer? Because if you bring pressure and you don't get to the quarterback, it's clear that the Clemson receivers were better better, than the Alabama. And then then you're going to get big play after big play after big play. And they were doing that even with seven men being dropped. They were getting big plays. Okay, so so let's take a different tack on this thing. People are talking about, you know, forever Alabama's been ascendant and now Clemson seems to have joined them, but there does seem to be a pretty big gap. And it feels, anecdotally at least, it feels like there's just a bigger gap there at the top than there used to be. It feels like you have to go back to before we were really born in the pre-scholarship limit era when the Alabamas and Texases of the world 
would have like 150 players on scholarship, they would take players just so other teams wouldn't have players. That's why you, that's why there's a scholarship limit because there was too much dominance by the top programs. A couple things that I noticed, and I've been researching some of this, and and, and uh, is that they only they're only allowed I think 20 or 25 scholarship a year per year per 25, year 25 25 that's so the, relatively so, new and that's new. But now I've been noticing this. But here's the thing that Alabama gets that others don't because I've been looking You're on their roster. You're saying this with a grin on your face, and you shouldn't appreciate this. This is evil what you're about to say. Well, no, I, 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 is that tremendously ta- talented high school players, I don't know if you know what I'm going to say, uh, are not choosing to go to other programs. They'd rather go to Alabama and be uh, a walk-on. Yeah. And I found this remarkable. So they have a, a crew of walk-ons who were Division One top recruits. And it turns out they don't start. But they perform essential roles on special teams and in, and and in practice, and they have depth that Alabama has depth that no other team. Okay, can come that is close different than to. I thought you were going to say. So I, I, I was mistaken, and that's really that is what I thought he was going to say. I thought he was going to. These teams used to churn players. They would the reason oh, there's a twenty five bring in five per hope year, to make it. They would sign thirty or thirty two a year. And then they, but this is the worst thing about college football. It's like they, stat doctoral programs, but then they're, an econ doctoral programs. You bring in twenty first year class students and hope five of them make yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one thing to do it to a PhD student versus a now, kid uh, that who came might, in to play football. Saying, by the way, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying they don't do this. I didn't notice well, they don't, this. They can't do it as much anymore because there's a hard cap on right. how many you can offer in a given year, and so they can't oversign and then run off the the chaff essentially. Mm-hmm. So, but that's a really interesting idea. Why would a kid do that? Why would you? I why went and read about them. Well, you went and read about sure. This is, you know, I went and read about it. the internet provides you this opportunity and they'll essentially say, why do I want to go and languish at a, a place that's not so famous when I can go to Alabama and play? And, and the thing that's interesting about it is that they're encouraged to do so. So they're not given a scholarship. So they have to fund themselves. But they are told by the coach that they are going to be an important part well, of the team. And this is this gets to back to what you're talking about, how they used to have huge scholarships and bring in tons of people. And they're still able to sort of do that. And on, but only teams like Alabama is able to but, do that because it's worthwhile to them to do so it. So you and I are going to keep talking about this for some time, I think, and I'll eventually see some of these data. But mm. it's they're able to do it, but they're not going to do it. Five stars aren't going there no, off scholarship. God. They're getting three-star guys. They're getting threes and twos. And, twos, yeah. well, be, and this rounds out their roster. Yeah, the only reason I was, it's interesting that you bring this up is let's think about Clemson for next year. It's, I think I'm right when I say every main offensive player on Clemson is returning next year. The quarterback, Trevor Lawrence, is returning. Etienne is returning. I think John Ross is returning. So I'll be interested. Derek, uh, Lawrence, who was the one who was suspended um, and didn't play. Dexter Lawrence. De- Dexter yeah. Lawrence. So yeah, that's a defensive player. Yeah. I was just commenting that they. one of the things they mentioned during the game was while Clemson is losing a lot of their defensive line, their entire offense is returning. So imagine I'm a great wide receiver. Am I going to go to Clemson next year? I mean, am I going to play significantly given a team that just won the national championship, essentially returning right. the entire yeah, offense? Right. right. So you do get some yes. cyclicality in that you way. Would go, you would go to Clemson. No, no. I mean, there's there's very few players, by the way, that, that are identifiable at that level. I mean, when you talk about five-star recruits, there aren't many of them. Like 25 or 30 yeah, 20, and, and, and they don't all go to, to Alabama and Clemson. They spread out. But, but, Adi, this is exactly what I wanted to get at. And this is something we'll take up offline, and we'll come mm-hmm. back and talk about when we know more. But this idea, you just said it. They spread out. Here's the hypothesis, that they spread out less than they used to. Okay. That's the fundamental hypothesis. And and we can look at it by looking at the distance they they go to college. We, we can get exactly this measure. And the, and the hypothesis is that, that the top recruits, at least at the top, the top 100 players, say, 
they're traveling further distances now than they used to. Now, why would that be? A couple of mechanisms. Two key mechanisms. One is just technology. That with Huddle is this this software yep. now where all the high school players have their highlights, and everybody can be seen by everybody. It's it's no recruiting is no longer geographically constrained really because of technology. The other thing is that because there are caps on the staff size of the programs. Programs do other things to compete. It's like the old days of regulation. Like they regulated the airline sure. industry. You can't. You, everyone charges the same price. So what do they do? They compete on other things. So if you can only hire so many coaches, what do the Alabamas of the world do? They have 25 guys running their recruiting process. They have former coaches as like, you know, special assistants. And what do they do? They process all these data and they d- identify the random guy in like – you know, agricultural California that they that is actually one of the best players. Historically, he would have gone to, you know, out there somewhere, UCLA. But instead, he goes to Alabama. So are you surprised that Clemson's now the, I guess, not really, maybe this is the preseason favorite now for next year? Am I surprised? No. Why would I be surprised about that? So these guys are relatively even and... Um, uh, uh, Clemson's recruiting class in 2018 well, was the first time in my in the recent five years that they, by one measure that I created, uh, out-recruited. Uh, out out, so as we're sitting here right now, if I now gave, 18. which one would you take, the field or Alabama and Clemson? I give you Alabama and Clemson next year, and I take the field. Are you happy to win the national championship in college? You get Alabama and Clemson, I get every other team. No. I don't, I'm I th- taking the field. I'm taking the field. I, th- I don't think it'd be a crazy bet. I'm, I'm just guessing what those odds would be, but I'm going to guess that they're joint odds they're they're yeah a third would be uh probably higher than that it's high i think it's 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 approaching 50 percent if i'd have to guess but yeah, i would still take I the field i'm with audio, there, exactly. there's so many things that can go wrong a loss or two losses well, for example, during the we, season we not Al- making the playoffs we had alabama 32 percent to win the whole thing probably mid-season okay so that means they started the season we go back and look at it but they probably started the season even alabama who was always our number one 2025 so I'm with Audie on that one. But this is one of the main things is people were sure that Alabama was going to win this thing in October. Yeah. And that's one, there's a lot that happens, has to happen. There's a lot of hurdles to clear. A lot of players could get hurt between now and then. And also it's football. Have you watched football? Oh, more, Standard more, deviations, 15 points it, exactly. in college. <laughs> but there's a also lot. Two touchdowns. And maybe this is a thing we can end on, but it seems to me that every time we start feeling like something is inevitable in sports, it, it, it fails. I mean, whether it's Serena Williams – or I don't know Tiger what else Woods. have we seen? Tiger Woods, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Prime, yeah. The undefeated New England Patriots. I mean, every time it starts feeling inevitable, I think they're the highest ELO ranking of any team in football. Is that right? And they, 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 they lost. They didn't nope. get it done. All right, fellas, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics live every Wednesday morning. 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. Kate Massey hosting this morning with my faculty colleagues, longtime Wharton Moneyball collaborators and good friends, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, our fourth our fourth musketeer is out and about doing Shane Jensen things. He's going to be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join us, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or add us on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is the handle up there, covering all things sports analytics. Speaking of callers, we have a caller. I think he's going to segue us right into NFL, which is probably what's going to take us up to the top of the hour. So, Tom from Western Kentucky, welcome to the show. Well, great. Thank you, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Um, 
being an Ohio State grant, I, after listening to the first half hour, I take the field. Yeah, um, yeah, I bet you do. <laughs> well, you know, hey, Ohio State is important in that in our decision. Well, it's just kind of a play on words as well, right? The, yeah. Justin Fields coming up to you from Georgia. Yes, yes, he's already he's already at school. All right, so that didn't we'll take long. All right. Okay. So, well, you, I want to talk about Eric last week. Eric made a very interesting point last week, and I hadn't really thought about it. He mentioned that the three home teams in the NFL wild card were less than the uh, home field advantage uh, in, uh, in the line. And as I watched the games on Sunday, obviously two of the three teams did lose straight out. In fact, three out of the four home teams lost, which I think is really unusual. But my question was, I- I'm a process guy, and I understand processes lead to outcomes. So the, my question is, if the odds makers are using the same process over, let's say, the last 10 years, could we not correlate some kind of uh, percentage that every time the home team is less than the home field advantage, that there's a chance that they're going to lose? Like this time, it'd be 66%. Right. So let, we, can, we can walk through that a little bit. It was an interesting collection of events last weekend, and it, it raises some questions. So, Eric, what are your thoughts on, on Tom's question? Yeah, so I pointed out last week that, you know, obviously the Colts played the Texans, but the Texans were favored by less than the home field advantage. Um, the Cowboys played the Seahawks last week. The Cowboys were favored by less than the home field advantage. And the same thing for the Ravens over the Chargers. The only team, actually, that was favored by more than the home field advantage was the Bears over the lost, Eagles. Yep. Mm-hmm. They lost. And so I just pointed out that it says, well, first of all, um, you had this inversion, right? We had a 12-4 and Charger team playing a, Adi and I talked about this, a 10-6 and Ravens team. So just, I mean, I know wins, losses aren't the only thing, but most, most strength models, like Massey, Peabody, etc., had the Chargers just as an outright better team than the Ravens. Yeah, I mean, it, just, it shows the disparity between seeding, which is based on record Correct. and division. And division. And, and actual statistical models. And that's really what that was. That was your observation. Well, not only that, but, you know, we're st- something to... Tom's question's a great one. Something that maybe if you're a Chiefs fan, you should be a little concerned right now. I mean, I don't know how much you guys put a stock on this. There is a team in the NFL right now that's won 10 out of its last 11 games. The Colts. And the Colts. Yeah. <laughs> so and 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 by and by the way, have done it in a very convincing fashion. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the after one game one in five. After I think, one yeah, in yeah. five, they're now eleven and six. I mean, if we count the playoff game, um, I think the Chiefs should be quite concerned. And the Chiefs have they played so well at the very end of the season, or no. does it matter? Um, considering they had it well, let me ask, up, I'm yeah. looking to Kate on this. Do you put I, that? By the way, it was on my list of stuff. As you guys know, I write we know notes we during the week. In, you know, I don't believe in momentum, and, and Eric and, does. And but, I do, but so but do I you, do believe at the end of the season there might be something that you would discount. Do you put any weight on the fact that the Colts have won? T- are they an 11 and six team, or are they a team that's won 10 out of their last 11? Some blend. So I've got an exponential decay on history, and so it's going to be something between those two things. So it's not that we dismiss those first four or five games altogether, but certainly we weigh more recent weeks more than the older weeks. And so it's, you know, we talk, we give Eric a hard time about momentum, but none of us are opposed to non-stationary processes. And we know that these football teams are, in fact, non-stationary processes. So the team at the end of the year is different than it was, and they can go in either direction. So when you're, when you're weighing the past to predict the future, you need to decay you need to estimate how much of a decay. And it turns out there's some decay in the NFL. Now, that all that said, we've looked hard for, 
can you say anything about the more than momentum stories? Like once you've control for your best assessment of the quality of the team, you know, you've run your model, you've used your weight on the history, whatever. Is there any additional punch from having won the last game or two or three at the end of the season? I think the answer is no. Uh, so, but that's the story. And, yep. and the, the last time we looked at this was one of these seasons that the Giants went in as a wild card and everyone talks about how hot they were. And we were so skeptical. And you run the numbers, you just can't find. Once you've controlled for the quality of the team based on your best model, you can't find any additional punts from having won well at the end of the year. Now, the Giants went through the whole thing and won the, and Super, won the Bowl. Super Bowl, but I stand by the data, the data, the data, the data. Do you do anything with the end of the season sort of washout games where teams that have that we have do. locked it all we up do. and we, we pull make, their quarterbacks? And this is a, over time, we've become a little more comfortable with needing to have it's kind of a supervised model. So in week seventeen. We just don't include some games, and we downweight some games. And and we try to do it objectively, but you have to do that, or else you're including a bunch of junk. Yeah, so my comment again last week, and I'm, I'm, thanks, Tom, for listening and bringing it up again this week. What Tom's actually talking about is, let's imagine instead of fitting, a lot of times we fit linear models, let's imagine you just fit like a tree-based model. Tom was almost saying, let's imagine you looked at the following tree, home field or not, favored by more than home field advantage or not. And he wants to look at that cell of games where you're the home team, but you're not favored by more than the home field advantage. And he wants to look to see if there's something special about those about games. Those. And by the way, that's what machine learning methods help us identify these, what I'll call, I don't want to call them causal patterns, these kind of interactions between variables that are not obvious. And he wants to combine home field advantage with not being a big favorite and see if that is something that's indicative. Am I wrong to be deeply skeptical that there's something there? No. No, you're not wrong. I think (laughs) you're not wrong. It's a fair question. No, I just said that's what his... I I was just encoding his question. I'm taking it to the next level. I don't think that. I don't think that. That's not one that I would put a lot of weight on and that I predict would be successful. It it is the kind of thing people bet all the time on. People say, I'm taking the home team that isn't favored by much, yeah. you know, or I'm taking the road dog that's done this. People yeah. do these, like I'll call them hard cutoff type of rules yeah. all the time but, when they come up with heuristics on how to But bet. one thing that's interesting about this is that particularly the home field, and, and uh, it, it segues into this topic of why is there a home field advantage and, and what causes it, and are there, exa- are there situations where the home field advantage is either exaggerated or attenuated? And and so, and there's actually 538 did ran an article this past week from Josh, we're going to have uh, next next. We're talking hour. about what yeah. causes the home field advantage, and the fact is, and, and we we uh, we actually, I asked uh, Jeremy Lin what causes it in basketball. In mm. basketball, it's the it's the largest. Last week of, we had Jeremy Lin on the show. We last had, week, and uh, and he actually gave an answer which I think might be the real answer and might apply even to the NFL, which is in the NFL most people think of it have thought about it as refs partly. And I don't really think the data shows that. And the other thing is noise. Well, well let's um, be fair. The book, Scorecasting, by our friend John Wertheim and our friend Toby, Toby Moskowitz, who used to be at Chicago, now at Yale, now at Hedge Fund, their answer, they looked at it across the number of sports, their empirical answer, and these guys are pretty serious, Toby especially empirically, was refs. They do, but but let's. Uh, I, I think that I don't think that that's enough to explain. Okay. For example, and one of the things you notice in, in across the sports is that the athletes perform on the field almost every measure that you that you want to d- describe a performance better at home. Yeah. So more home runs they hit, they have more singles, more doubles, more triples. They collect, they they make they're much more successful at shooting baskets at home. And but it doesn't doesn't dis- so obviously they win more games. So it's it, uh, so right. there are some ref effect. There's no doubt there's some ref effect. But the question is, can you explain all of it. Now, 
Now, in in football, there's crowd noise is really yeah, important. Yeah, the there's a recent article about and noise. That's, and that's what we can, we can ask John about this is that the crowd noise is really – and I actually spoke to someone on Monday who was at the game in Chicago, and he said it was nuts mm-hmm. how loud it was. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, it, and there's a couple other things that matter. Uh, it turns out that, that uh, the, the home field controls the music and the, yeah. the, the, the stuff that comes yeah. out of the speakers. Yeah. Yeah. And there are all kinds of tricks they do to make it noisier. They're supposed to cut off that music as soon as the huddle breaks, yeah. but they don't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they keep it going and makes it harder for the, for the quarterback to call an audible if his team can't hear. Well, we can take that further. <laughs> Remember, there used, to be, there used to be accusations about the Pats. And the quality of the phone line between the press box and the sidelines, or but or I would be I, such I, the pass. It's like so paced. Like somehow the phone lines always go bad in the middle of the game in Fox. And they can't hear. And the other thing is that they do is they mic the crowd and they feed it back. Yeah, 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 <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it comes yeah. through the amplification system. But but it turns out, and this is what this is what the article was saying that you you predict there are certain kind of plays that require um, that where noise might be a bigger factor, and Absolutely. it turns out it doesn't forecast. So that leaves it all in this question mark. What, okay. What's going on if it's okay. not necessarily refs can't explain even the majority of the effect, and it's not necessarily crowd noise. And what is it? And and that and the what Jeremy Lin said about basketball was familiarity. He right. said, "I'm on my home turf, yeah. and I just feel good, and mm-hmm. and that's because I know the the court, I know the rim, I feel the community." Yeah. And then he started talking about all these things related to comfort. I I, mean, I sleep in my own bed. Yeah. I have my own blackout shades. I have my own tub. You asked him a um, question also about how about just oh well, basketball? It's all the same size. How about the lighting differences, the background differences? Yep. I mean, the fact that you're you know the the sight lines, the vision. Something that supports that idea in football is that home field advantage is diminished. Uh, at divisional opponents who you play you play in their stadium every year because you're familiar with them and you play yes not as familiar as your own obviously but more familiar than you are since we're talking about rules of thumb or types of things related to tom's how about do we put any stock in the fact that the chargers are eight and one on the road this year zero they're a better team but actually rufus has looked at this big time this year and he says these small samples of like their road their road record this year is no more predictive of going forward than the. So you don't give them any record. like just them playing the Patriots. Who's the better team? The yeah, Tisco exactly. model say Patriots so are we better. Got, we have two teams that we know their strength, or we can estimate their strength. We have a home field advantage to Foxborough, and that's it. That's what you got. You got to get get away from this kind of thing. And again, as you said, Eric, it's a really important point. Betters, casual betters, make these mistakes. They get these really simple heuristics based on super small samples, and they bet them, and there's just no empirical basis for it. So I just want to make sure. If the Chargers were in the same position they are now, but were 3-5 and five at, on the road and undefeated at home, you wouldn't change anything whatsoever? Definitively not. Not, Definitively not because we don't not. know, okay. but because we know not to change anything. That's how strong. I love a good is. solid answer like that. You don't see them in statistics that often. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm giving you Rufus's. No, it's fine. You, I think he's giving his a confidence interval for that for that it's that strong. coefficient well, is I, very I, small. I think as everyone's <laughs> listening to the Patriots Chargers game uh, this weekend, I think I think which I think by the way is the Sunday game. I think it's the early game on Sunday. I think people will hear this narrative over and over and over again that the Chargers are a great road team, and that gives them this extra ability to believe they can go into the Foxborough and win the game. It might influence their belief. You agree with that. It's just not empirically shown to improve their performance on the field. That's right. That's right. Let's let's this is Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric, Adi, and Cade in here. You guys can join the conversation. One eight four four Wharton. One eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Tell me about the field. We're down to eight. 
all the teams that had buys have to get back on the field now. How big an advantage is it to sit that week? You know, well, because- it's an advantage in the odds. It's about a fifty percent increase because you don't have to play a game which no, you could lose but he's so, referring to conditional now that, that we're here now that we're here so i can tell you that what do you think our empirically it's worth about half of home field advantage to have had a buy. one and a half points yeah about one and a half points to have had that buy or one and a quarter maybe something like that is so that it's repairing more your your injuries your rest is that yeah, what do you think I, yeah. I, yeah the rest the is so rest important. is such a big deal in at top top performance in sports in general so they get the buy advantage. They get they didn't have to play the the game. So you you have to put so much more weight on those four teams advancing. What's your take on the field? We're going to talk about the games. We'll make our picks at the end of the show. But talk to me about who you think is going to make it through in the next well, couple of rounds. Well, I mean, it's hard not to you know bet on New Orleans and the Rams. I mean, they, they clearly have inferior opponents. So you, I wouldn't bet against either of them. I mean, if you give me enough um, odds, of course I take yeah. it. Now, who's betting against St. Nick from the, from the yeah, Philly? Yeah, so that's, that's, that's but, one. Like, which of the four home teams are least likely to make it through? So, I mean, I will go with Eric. And I, I mean, I would say that Indianapolis, I think that particularly if you recognize that it's a last last 12 games, they're 11-1, and one, I think that is valuable. And and I think they and, and I think the Kansas Kansas City is maybe not as strong as we th- thought they were. I think that's a good matchup. That I, if I had to pre- predict that one, it's hard to bet against New England, but I don't think they're that good. So those would be my. Yeah, two. I think similar to I I th- I think if you look at the whole body of the NFL season, I think the four best teams. The Patriots have been spotty at times, but the four best teams in football are the four teams that have home field in this round. And I mean, totality of the season. I see no reason to believe, I don't know if this is, I'll sit this way on Sunday and I'd like to, or, you know, I have no reason to believe the one and two seeds won't advance in both. I have no reason to, I have no, matter of fact, it's happened quite frequently in football in the last five or six years. So I have no if you ask the, me the right home now, field, the, the, home mean, the, team. the top two often advance. I mean, this is what what we've observed. But this year, I and mean, then this was—I'm just quoting 538, who uses their ELO model for almost everything. There's less inequality in, uh, well, in this year's top you. twelve, and I think even in this year's top eight, than there's typically in, a, in, a, in an NFL um, postseason. Meaning that the, there's no one team over 30 percent, and there's no, and the top four are dividing most of the probability, and even the bottom four are not so bad that uh, that they collectively aren't contributing a, a bunch of, of No, but a, a that could be for a couple reasons. So one possible reason is there's not as much separation between them and everyone else. Another possibility is the Rams and Saints are both good, and so it's hard for me to decide which one of them is going to go to the Super Bowl, and the Patriots and Chiefs oh, are kind good. of even, and therefore it's not obvious which one of them is going to go. I think this is a very astute observation, and that matches up better with our data, because we in fact see... Our data suggests that there is more of a separation between the Rams and Saints and the rest of the field. So Eric's given us, well, you could still have that and have relatively diffuse probabilities. Because they're going to bump against each other. Because they're going to play each other. That's exactly right. The the thing you said that that doesn't match our data, and it's going to take us back to Sunday, which I'm curious to hear about, is the top four teams being the 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 buy teams we had late in the season the bears sneak into our top four and even after the game sunday we have the number three so tell me i didn't get to watch the game so our local team goes into chicago they had the they were the biggest underdog of the weekend and they went in there and they got it done. Well, they Holes got it again. done. Talk about unpredictable things, the double doink. I mean, this is a 43-yard field goal was the difference of the game. And the probabilities for an average an average kicker, we're going to talk to a kicker, is about 85%. 
From that distance. From that distance. An average NFL kicker. And, of course, an NFL <laughs> kicker. Maybe even a little higher because the data that I was using was uh, a couple years out. And my understanding is that, that they've They're, been getting better every how, single year. It's unbelievable the improvement in NFL kicking. So, so I would even probably push that closer to 88 or even 90%. So he hit the goalpost. And not only hit the goalpost, but he doinked. Which is and, a, the, and then it hit the crossbar. Which, well, hitting the crossbar is just an, an added, added... No, but after hitting... I mean, you would think of the... I mean, to hit the upright... And then to bounce straight downward. Right. And then not go in, because you can go either direction right. at that point. That yeah. part is... It's highly, highly unlikely, but this is, this is, this is a, but I a think, game of But I think the point of that game is something entirely different. So what you had was a relatively inexperienced quarterback for Chicago, Mitch Trubisky. You had an Eagles defense that's clearly playing better. I think the safest bet in that game actually had nothing to do with the game. I mean, the spread, it had to do with the under. Mm-hmm. There was no way, I didn't think, unless there were a massive number of turnovers, that that was going to be a high-scoring game. Because the Bears, by most measures, I'm, I don't know if Massey Peabody had this as well, were the number one defense They were the football. number one defense. And so how many points, really, were the Eagles going to put up in that game? And then you said, well, the Bears... I'm still not a believer in Mitchell Trubisky. I'm still not a believer that he's the I think franchise we, we, quarterback can I, can I just, going forward. So I thought it would be a low-scoring game, and you know what? I thought it would be a coin toss game. You know what? I'm going to add in something. When there is a low-scoring game, if you take in the conversation we had earlier about you know leverage and explosions, those things are random. And in low-scoring games, those random effects can have a much more right. Im- bigger impact. Yeah, that's and that's potentially, that's you know, when you're trying to forecast probabilities with a with a def- strong defensive team, I think that's where things can go haywire with maybe higher probability. Eric, you're talking about Trubisky. Just reminds me, you and I were together in one of my favorite draft moments. My favorite draft of all time, for sure. It was here. It was here on the museum grounds in Philadelphia, and Eric and I were there. In, in some ridiculous situation, and they traded up. They gave a they gave a truckload to move up like a one spot and take Mitch Trubisky. And since then, it's just raised. It's just anecdotal, but it does raise a very you know. Here we're going to watch this guy for the rest of his career and judge the Chicago Bears front office by their decision to do that. I think he's protected very well by the system, and he's protected very well by a really good defense. Put him on an average defensive team, and I don't think, you know, you would have to ask him to do more, and I don't think he's yet ready to do more. Well, there is the yet. That's always the question. Like the, you may not believe in him now. You're you, you're saying you're a little skeptical that he's ever going to be the franchise quarterback, that he needs to be to have justified that pick. Well, I'll say the following. Um, can he win a Super Bowl with the Chicago Bears? Yes. Because the Chicago Bears' defense is really good. He's no worse than a bunch of other... He's no worse than some other quarterbacks that have won Super Bowls. And in three or four years, can he be a second quartile quarterback in the NFL? Yes. But not the one that he was drafted as. Speaking of quarterbacks, where are you on Foles right now? Well, I'm going to say right now. If Nick Foles goes in and beats the New Orleans Saints... (laughs) Remember, we lost 48-7 to to the Saints just a few weeks, six, seven weeks ago. Uh, it's going to be hard to sit this guy. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, Carson Wentz is the franchise quarterback, but wow. If, if Foles goes in there, and the, the, the mythology around Nick Foles, if he goes in and beats the Saints, I, I, I don't want to be in that front office having to decide what to do. So you think that if they do trade him, that, that a team in need of a quarterback would be very wise to go ahead and get him. You believe in Nick Foles. You believe in his ability outside even the Philadelphia system to go out and lead a team to the to the Super Bowl. I think he's better. He's in the top third of quarterbacks in the NFL. I think the Eagles would be wise to trade high. 
What do you mean trade high? I think his val- his trade stock him. is higher than it's worth in the okay. future. Well, the stock for Carson Wentz would probably be even higher. <laughs> Some people are wondering. I mean, you know, the thing that's hard to yeah. predict is injuries and can you show up? And so far, Wentz has had either bad luck or prone yeah, to injuries. Yeah, I mean, this, this, the injury that he has now, I, was, I watched the game with a, a doctor friend of mine. He said, that's a weird injury for a kid. That's very, very highly unusual. So it raises this question, which we talk about a lot on the show, that the future of analytics is how well can we forecast and then maybe prevent injuries. All right, fellas, that's been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow. You guys can join us. Phone number 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. Or email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or add us on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle up there. Good to be back. 2019, got the whole crew in here. Shy Shane even saw Dion Simpkins. We had a Dion Simpkins sighting, associate producer, the original sound engineer, the heart and soul of Wharton Moneyball, really. He was there in the beginning. Good to see Dion, if only fleetingly. We are rolling into the second half of the show. We have two guests in this half of the show. First guest, first up, Josh Hermsmeyer. Josh is one of the top analysts out there. These days, working with all kinds of interesting new technology, writing for 538. He's been on the show before, and we're always happy to have him. Josh, good morning, and welcome to the show. Okay, thanks for having me on. Delighted to have you. Where are you calling in from this morning, Josh? Uh, We're in uh, North Idaho today. Uh, um, It's uh, snowing and, I think, 27 degrees. All right. That sounds appropriate for this time of year. We appreciate you getting up this early. Always, Always appreciative of you West Coasters, or at least... Pacific time zone, folks. Is that actually mountain time zone? No, it's know. Pacific. They it want to Pacific. kind of link us with the with the Seattle and Spokane area. Got yeah. it. Got it. Got it. All right. Well, listen, Josh. Here's a here's a take for you. I I think Josh Hermsmeyer is the Pat Mahomes of the NFL <laughs> analytics community. This is his breakout year. Everyone's talking wow. about Josh Hermsmeyer. By the way, Pat Mahomes is the Steph Curry of the NFL. He had his he had his Steph Curry year this year. There's a point mid season where everybody's talking about Pat Mahomes. Um, are you a believer in Pat Mahomes? Let's start there. What's your take on the breakout quarterback of the year, Josh? Yeah, I don't see how you you can't love what what Pat Mahomes did this year with uh, 50 touchdowns, just a few interceptions, and I, probably the only bad thing about Pat Mahomes is his unfortunate nickname, like Showtime Mahomes. That is that's garbage. <laughs> that's really bad. I, I hope he I hope he somehow uh, earns a better nickname than that. Maybe something to do with ketchup. But no, I don't think you can argue with his uh, with his stats. He's, he's incredible. Have you dabbled at all in the? quarterback forecasting business there's we're about to get into this silly season of the nfl which is also one of the most fun seasons which is which quarterbacks the draft in general but especially the quarterback draft have you played at all with that because mahomes is an interesting case study he was very controversial or high variance forecast i suppose coming out of college yeah i agree with that completely and uh, i have looked a little bit at it and and it's difficult to, to put 
to, to put it lightly, um, I know you've done work on a lot of people have tried, and I think it's probably the uh, the high order bit in, in NFL forecasting is to try and be able to figure out which of those young prospects are going to be good in the NFL. One of the things I found that was actually pretty helpful, um, and uh, it, what it is is basically you look at a completion percentage by depth. So over every depth of target in college, how well did the uh, did the passer do? Did he complete more passes than you might expect? And the reason why I think it's useful is because um, it, it's, it's sort of a proxy for football IQ, uh, or, or at least how well an athlete can function within a system. And, and you know, some people like to say or, or you know, pin, pin on a quarterback or a prospect that they're a system QB, but I really don't think there's a, a higher compliment you can pay to a quarterback because if he's any good at his job, he's going to be the personification of the offense. He's going to be the living embodiment of it. So to be a systems quarterback – uh, is, to, is to be operating at a really high level and doing what you're asked to do at a really high level. And so I think um, in terms of metrics, and I, I think this is kind of where, um, you know, the analytics community breaks down in football, um, is, is that we're unable to kind of measure the thing that's probably most important in quarterback play, and that's that football IQ, that mental processing. Um, but in terms of metrics, I think that uh, completion percentage adjusted for depth gets closest to being a decent proxy for that. Well, it's interesting you, you say that. You, it reminds me, I think I think it's your work, actually, that was the first time that I realized Mayfield might have been a different quarterback than I thought. Mayfield is one of these guys, despite, and this is how much of a rube I am, I think most of us probably are, who aren't who aren't deeply into this sport professionally in, in some way. I, you know, my team is Texas. I ran up against Mayfield, sadly, more than once. But I didn't appreciate how good a quarterback he was. And, and what happened, his stock over the draft snuck up, and there were many teams. It wasn't just Cleveland who was kind of secretly planning on taking him. There were many others who realized somewhere along the lines that they thought he was the number one quarterback going in. The first time I got some insight into that, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, was your analysis, Josh. You had this, you had this like play completion percentage as a, as a function of depth of target. And, of course, it goes down. The further they're... The further they're trying to complete a pass, the less likely they are to make it. But you were comparing the big four prospects out of the out of college last year, and if I remember correctly, Mayfield, who was supposed to be the system guy, you know, running this you know quick thing that OU does, actually had the better completion percentage at the deeper routes than you know even Darnold. Am I remembering that right? That's correct. Even even better than Allen. Uh, he you know in, in terms of deep ball, he was. <laughs> supposed to be one of the best uh, prospects uh, going and, and and but it was across all depths of target he was functional he was well above average right um and, and i think the way the, the i think the proper way to view that is that really sets the ceiling for his nfl performance he'll never do better than that than he right. did in college um and, and i think we saw that he, he was slightly above average this year and uh, across all depths and and for a rookie, that's actually quite an accomplishment, and uh, I think it bodes well for his future. Well, speaking of other rookies, there's there's a question about what's going on in Baltimore. Lamar Jackson led them on a great run in the second half of the season, and they made the playoffs by the skin of their teeth, but then did not look good in their wild card game, especially in that first half. Came back and had, had a decent second half. They seem to be on the way to parting with Joe Flacco. Two very different quarterbacks. What 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 do you have on the on the Ravens and on Jackson, and what can we learn from his first year in the league? Well, I think uh, their scheme isn't the same old same old in the NFL. It's not just uh, line up and run. There's a lot of uh, design QB runs, and the most effective uh, rushing play in the NFL 
at least that I've found, is, is the QB scramble, and he did quite a bit of that. And, and I think, you know, the, the counter to that, and, and it's something that I think you'll see more in the NFL uh, next year and, and anytime you're facing a, uh, a mobile quarterback, is, is what the Chargers did is that they didn't have any real linebackers. Everyone was a defensive back. Mm-hmm. Um, they, may have line, they may have lined up in the, in the linebacker position, but they were smaller, faster, um, you know, sure tacklers who were able to spy um, uh, Lamar Jackson, no matter which side of the field or when he decided to take off. And so you saw, uh, I think, midway through the third quarter, I think they had a net yards passing of negative two. Right. Um, I mean, it, it, it was it was a bad look. Um, things just it weren't going well for that offense uh, uh, last weekend. Well, that's that's the concern, I think, of of any team that's relying on some running out of their quarterback, there, there, there have been examples of success, but they've typically been short-lived. And one of the reasons for that, I believe, is that NFL teams are so good at responding and adapting. And eventually there's like a book on a guy, and everybody copies it. This, this happens over the course of a season. This is how efficient they are in improving and copying. And there have been you know, books develop on, on rushing quarterbacks. Even Vince Young had a good first year in the NFL. And then teams adapt and you can't do it anymore so the concern if you're a Ravens fan is that yeah he's good first year out but here's the Chargers they saw him two weeks before right they were the perfect example of we're gonna we're gonna experience learn iterate and we're gonna be better the next time so the the big question is if the if the defenses do that to Jackson and the Ravens next year what is the Ravens move how can they then adapt and it does is there another tool in there that they can deploy to to compensate yeah, and, and I'm not sure there is unless Jackson can elevate his game as a pocket passer because that's that that's where you'll make your gains. That's where those uh, those scrambles and those designed runs will will start to be even more efficient. Is if you can uh, make the defense respect that that pocket passing game. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, speaking of um, run games and passing, you've done some provocative work on the play action pass. You've got a strong position on the play action pass. And you've done some interesting analysis that people hadn't done before. So can you talk with us a little bit about, you've got this up on 538 probably in the last week or so. Again, Josh writes for 538. And um, you dug into the impact of play action. What did you find? Yeah, so I was able to get my hands on through uh, a data initiative called the the Big Data Bowl uh, from the NFL. Uh, The NFL analytics director, Michael Lopez, uh, he really spearheaded an effort to release some of this next-gen data, this player tracking data. Um, super exciting. It's the future of NFL uh, analytics. And uh, so a tranche of that data was actually released and, um, uh, to the public, and I asked permission to go ahead and write up on play action. They, um, they were really kind to grant that uh, to me because um, it is their data. They do own it. Um, in any event, I looked at the movement of the linebacker on play action. And, and for a long time, we've looked at play action and said, well, it's a really efficient passing play, right? It's it's a, a yard, a yard and a half per play better than any other passing play in the NFL. But there was this open question of, are defenses really fooled time after time after time um, if you were to run play action, say, 14, 11 times a game, um, would they eventually stop biting? Would the, would the defender, the middle linebacker, for instance, is what I looked at in the article, would he continue to take false steps towards the line of scrimmage um, even after he'd seen play action um, X number of times? And so I looked at the wasted yards that the uh, that the linebacker um, uh, uh, took, in other words, the the distance that he moves toward the line of scrimmage on play action, and I looked at it for every nth uh, time that a uh, a play action was called in a game, all the way from 
one to 16 times. I think four games where a team called play action 16 times in the sample. And what I found, the, the, the net of it was that the linebackers continue to bite. They continue to make false steps towards the line of scrimmage. doesn't matter how many times a play action pass is called. Um, and, and I think the reason for that, or my hypothesis for the reason, is that it's just it goes back to how they're trained and, and what they're what they're drilled to do and and they're taught they're taught to play the run first and to, to fill that gap and, and to fill that gap you got to get ready and make a physical play um, and and that really gearing up to do that and, and that mindset is going to cause you to take that step or two towards the line of scrimmage anytime your run key leads you in that direction and um, from a, from an offense's point of view that's wonderful it means you don't have to be good at running the ball to <laughs> fool the linebacker. Um, and, uh, and play action will be effective uh, d- despite your, uh, uh, your, your focus on the running. So, John, this is uh, Adi Weiner. I wanted to ask you, Josh, sorry. <laughs> I've been, been listening uh, patiently, and, and I'm, I'm learning a lot about all this, this uh, vocabulary and these modeling. But one of the things that, I guess, popped into my head immediately was this uh, concern that as you look at teams that have run the play action 10, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 times, teams that do that are teams that are good at it and are getting value out of it. So aren't you getting selection bias? Te- teams that do it a lot are the ones that are that they are continuing to fool the linebackers, and the ones that are not fooling the linebackers as they do it are not doing it a lot. So aren't aren't you a little worried about that potential problem from your interpretation? Always worried about selection bias. I don't I don't know how you how you get around it in almost any analysis. But I did look at if teams run more play action, are they necessarily the teams that are better at it? Um, and, and I didn't find any correlation uh, between number of times running play action and its effectiveness at team level. Um, so I, I'm not entirely certain uh, what measure we would be able to use to go ahead and tease out which teams are actually good. It's, it's the case that uh, over 75% of the league is better at play action um, than they are at any other passing play. So it is kind of this universal good. Um, and we do know from lots of other studies that I haven't done that I've, I've just um, kind of riding on the soldier, uh, shoulders of um, that, you know, in terms of production-based metrics, uh, it, it's universal that play action is something that works, that it's unrelated to the number of times you run the ball. Uh, it's unrelated to how successful or unsuccessful you are at running the ball. Um, so I really do think that there, there might be something there in terms of just overall effectiveness of the play. So, Josh, this is Eric Bradlow. Are you shocked that there isn't a positive relationship between the effectiveness of play action and the number of times you do it? I mean, rationally, if play action continues to work, you should run it more, and coaches clearly can measure and know this. So the selection issue that Adi talked about, I'm surprised that there isn't an uh, like a, a very strong relationship there, because that's what coaches are taught to do, is to... Continue plays to, do the to maximize that work, yeah. to maximize yeah. the game. So, why do you think that is? Or another possibility is it? Maybe I've looked at this. Is there a limit to the amount of play action you can do? So maybe the reason where this is actually relates to a discussion we were having in the first half hour. Here's three reasons why you couldn't have found an effect. One reason is the effect is small, therefore it doesn't exist. Another is it's not being measured properly. That's another possibility. And the third is the model being used to detect it isn't right. So, do you think it's any of those three or none of those three? certainly could be uh, any of those three. Um, there's, you know, I'm, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, I've, uh, that there is any conclusion here you can hang your hat on saying that, uh, you know, play action is uh, it's conclusively um, always a good thing. But there is no evidence to suggest that players um, uh, stop 
are, are stopped being fooled by the by the play action. And I think I think the 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 main the main reason why you may not want to run play action too often, and then and I think you know putting aside the idea that coaches are, are, are kind of optimizers or maximizers, I don't know if I agree with that. Um, I think one of the reasons is you, you have, the quarterback has turned his back on, on the play, and, and some quarterbacks are uncomfortable doing that. So that might be one reason. Another reason might be it takes a little bit longer to develop. There is a slightly mm-hmm. higher um, sack rate on play action, mm-hmm. so the defense has more opportunity to get to you. And the other part is you want some quick pop passing in, in, your, in, your, uh, in your play offense, in your scheme. And that's kind of what RPO has been built to develop, um, mm-hmm. is that idea that you can still have deception but then make that quick pass, the, that kind of uh, uh, West Coast-style slant game or, or screen or, or quick out game. And so I think it's a confluence of those factors as to why um, you know coaches not being optimizers, not being maximizers, um, quarterback uh, familiarity with the play action. You know, A lot of it happens under center, and there are a lot of quarterbacks who come from the college uh, purely as shotgun passers. And then this idea that you need the shorter, quicker um, passing concepts. We're talking to Josh Hermsmeyer. Josh is a football writer for 538. He's also the founder of airyards.com. He is a fantastic follow on Twitter. His handle up there is at Frisco Josh, at Frisco Josh. Josh, one of the nice things you did here with this study is you took this very rich, complicated, kind of overwhelming data set of motion tracking from the NFL, and you found a very specific tractable thing you could look at, middle linebacker distance traveled, essentially. And we're sitting here watching the dots move around. In the article, you've got this great visualization. We're watching that as we talk to you. Can we use that as an example to go a little further on what we can do with motion tracking? Can we can we just elaborate? Okay, you've got this one thing. You're watching middle linebacker distance moved as a function of what the offense is doing. Can we, and I'm pushing my guys here as well, Eric and Adi, if you had these data, let's just elaborate what, the, what kinds of questions you could ask. Because Josh said this thing, which we've been saying for years and firmly believe, this is the future of football analytics and probably other sports as well. But it's almost completely untapped. So let's just take this very, very small, concrete example and say, okay, well, if Josh had some more time and we could ask him anything we wanted to with just these little bitty data that he's got, what would you ask? It's interesting that just to, to – I saw this data come on in about not, – not even a month ago, and I kind of wondered what to do about this, and we have a whole team of students who might be interested. But I didn't delve in for a simple reason. I would never have thought to do what Josh did. I don't not know anything about football. And if you don't know enough about the sport yeah. – to use this tracking data, you just are you're going in Good. blind. It's you got to be at least a deep, deep cognoscenti. You got to get yourself in this sport and know what's going on and know what to look for. Otherwise, it'll otherwise it'll overwhelm you. It's just massive. Well, there's a general point there about analytics, right? That's and, right. Paired with some interesting knowledge is really helpful, Eric. No, I was just saying. So one possibility is just have you know. This is what coaches do. Just generate a set of hypotheses. Yeah. You know, I can generate a set of hypotheses for you, and then you know we can look at the data together. I mean, it doesn't That's happen. That's true. I mean, that yeah. would be another thing. The other possibility, of course, this isn't causal in any way, would be to generate a bunch of effects. And, in other words, find out what pops in the data, and then try to say, is there any common theme between these effects that we're finding? That's also another possibility. Well, so, and, I'm, and I'm asking you all to be a little more specific here. So, And Josh has been digging the data, so he has ideas, I'm sure. But I start wondering about you know, player assessment and team evaluation. So did some teams move the linebackers more than others? Are they more effective at pulling them away? Just team variation. Um, are some linebackers less fooled? Like you can really start differentiating the quality of linebacker play, presumably by how instinctive they are. This is middle linebacker is one of the 
one of the defensive positions, probably the canonical defensive position that's lauded for being instinctive. Like the great ones are instinctive. So you ought to be able to see that in motion tracking data. Let's give Josh a second. Josh. Yeah, if, if I was a team, I would probably look at this initial result and I would say, well, that's great, Josh, and that's league level, but here are the concepts we run. Here's the play concepts we run. Here's the guy we actually need to move against this look, too high safety. This is our, these are our route combinations to the left side of the field. We need to get that left outside linebacker to take two false steps towards right. the wide side of the field. Like, I think that is really what a team wants to know. And, okay. and, 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 it's, and it's why the team needs to hire some analytics professionals to actually answer those questions for them so that they can say, yeah, against zone coverage, um, this team likes to look, you know, against this personnel, this team likes to run this type of defense, and here's how much we can expect to move that man with, with play action. And, and I think that you can then use that tactically to create a game plan and i think that's the that's the end game um for uh, for nfl analytics at least at the at the pro level so josh sarah bradley how do you take into account that in some sense all downs and distances aren't created equal so for example yeah i moved the linebacker on third and nine and gave up a seven yard play but that was exactly the design in other words the linebacker was taking away x to give them y because down and distance suggested that you wanted to actually give them the short route. So how? Give. Let me ask a broader question. Yes, related to this, but how do you take all those questions you even mentioned down and distance and everything else? How do you take all of that into account when you're kind of scoring something in this way? I think the best way is with expected points added. It's a, a metric of Virgil Carter, a former quarterback uh, who worked under Bill Walsh um, back in the '60s. Uh, he was a mathematician. He came up with this idea that you could. Uh, you derive the point value of any play based on the down distance field position. And, uh, and so we use that now to kind of uh, adjust for all of those contexts as best we can. Um, time remaining in the game, the complete game state is a win probability calculation, but expected points added does a, a pretty good job. So I think that's, that would, as a first approximation, I would start. So I just want to say, you're now ta- which I agree with, you're now talking about taking the motion tracking data, and a, which, by the way, last time I checked, that data does not tell me how much time is left in the game, what the score is, down and distance. I'm saying you have that data, but that's not in the motion data. So now you want to take the motion data and append it and link it to other contextual factors in the game. That's all I'm, I'm saying. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's what I did with this analysis. I appended an entirely separate data set so that I could run a more robust and rich analysis. Josh, what else are you interested? In? I mean, maybe as a writer, you don't want to let us know what you're going to work on next. But I've got I've got one project I want to talk about with you. But before I do that, I want to find out what are you thinking about? Like we're, you're getting into these motion tracking data, and it's a completely open field. Where do you yeah. want to take it? I, I, right now, I'm actually for my next article. I'm working on something unrelated to motion data. Uh, had to do with. Uh, Kind of Schottenheimer, Brian Schottenheimer kind of uh, brought it to the fore. Yeah. This idea of, of play sequencing is run, run, pass. Is that truly um, a suboptimal way to sequence your, your, your play calling? Because he certainly did a lot of that, even in the second quarter of the game last weekend, um, when it didn't appear to be working. And so I'm kind of looking at the universe of sequences. There's first, second, and third down. There's 14 different combinations of uh, sequencing you can do. By the time you get to third down, there's eight different combinations. And I'm trying to tease out if there is an optimal sequence um and anyway i'm I'm about three quarters of the way through the analysis and uh, i think i think in some regard guys like schottenheimer might be vindicated 
um, in, in the sense that if you don't do the optimal thing, which is pass on first down, uh, running, if you did make the mistake of running on first down, it, it, it looks like it could actually be the case that uh, you may want to go run again and then just give it a heave on third down. Um, it may be one of the better options. Um, but, but again, I think uh, analytics is, is, has shown from, I think, for the past 30 years that that, that first down pass is almost always the, uh, the the correct decision. That's interesting. So, J- Josh, um, it's funny. You know, we're, we all in here have our skeptical moments, but our chief skeptic is Adi. And so as you're talking, I'm watching me and Eric both looking at Adi. <laughs> we're both like, because he's trying to process it, take it in. But he's going to come up with something that's going to push you in a different direction. Adi. Well, the thing about this is it has to do with, <laughs> predictability and um, the entropy of your decision-making sequence. Entropy, I'm using that word again. Entropy is the predictability. It's the, uh, mm. It has to do with essentially measuring how well you can forecast what's coming next. And if it becomes the, the, the known idea that you should pass on first down, you just defend against it and, you, you know, play action my ass, right? Whatever. I, you're passing, you know, and, <laughs> and, and then you start to see all these things work. I mean, when you, when you were noting that no matter how deep into the game and how frequently you do the play action, you, it still works. Part of the reason why that works, as long as you have some entropy, and that's really the right word to use here, it will still work. It doesn't matter whether you have a lot or a little, as long as you have some, it's going to work well. So your question is, how do you get that into his current exactly. analysis of Schottenheimer? That's right. You got it. You, so in other words, if you don't occasionally run, I mean, this, this, this leads to questions like national equilibrium and all these are economic principles if you aren't occasionally doing something that people don't expect then the whole world just falls apart in the ways that you you you, you should almost know is going to happen I, I agree with that and i think finding the optimal run pass balance on first down is something that can only be arrived at empirically and unfortunately teams have limited the range at which we're able to analyze that the, the most we've ever seen a team i think is in the the mid 60s pass on first down and 60 percent um, and, and I think what we need to see is at least one enterprising team eighty uh, <laughs> percent. Do, right. do it for us. Do it for the analysts. Yeah. We need someone to run. Well, this is you know this is the question that, that you ask about football. I mean, in, in uh, there really isn't an extensive minor league program where you can play on these things and try them and and, and implement new ideas. You're going to do it in the NFL. You got 16 games a season. You're right. going to try to experiment. That's exactly where you don't want to do it. Exactly. Right. So, Josh, can you give us a little bit of intuition about uh, you said something fascinating, and I heard you right. I just want to make sure I understand the intuition behind it. Passing is almost always the optimal thing to do on first down, but if you make the mistake of running, going back to the optimal thing is not necessarily the right thing to do. What's the intuition behind that? Because if true, then that's, to me, one of these kind of, not anomalies, one of these quizzical things we look for as scientists, which is the best thing is A, but once you've done B, A is no longer optimal. Hypothesis, it's, it's Adi's point. It's less predictable. If you're behind the chains well, that much, they expect you to pass. That's one option. Yes. I just, I'd love to hear Josh. Yeah. Or yeah. is it because, you know what, running on first and ten doesn't make sense, but running on second and six, and that, six which is, or seven, or which ten. is where you... Second and ten is no, what no, he's no, really but, talking about. No, no, what I'm saying, if you've run on first down, the average oh, yards right. gained is three to four yards. So now you're not running on first and ten, you're running on second and six. Is that? I'm just trying to understand the intuition behind why this might be true. Yeah, and, and uh, I have to admit I haven't had a lot of time to kind of uh, uh, to tease all that apart and kind of create my own mental model for why that might be the case. So I'm, all, I'm doing this on the fly, but I do believe that uh, um, if, if you run on first down, you put your team in a situation where you're, you're basically trying to eke out the next set of downs. 
Right. If you pass, if you pass and fail, then you are in a third and long situation. If you run, you're at least going to be a okay. in a third and manageable situation. Interesting. All right. So, Josh, we're down to just a couple of, of minutes. I'm I'm curious to to test one thing with you. We talk a little bit. We've talked on and on on and off on the show about something that's hard to get at in player evaluation. And that is when you've got a very good player or a very weak player and you, and you can or have to adjust for him in your setup. So for example, if you have a very good defensive back, a shutdown corner, and you can roll the rest of your guys over to the other side of the field and not worry about that guy, it's a real advantage. And he has a tougher job, but if he's good enough to pull it off, it, the rest of the team benefits. In our, in our numbers, it's really hard to give that guy enough credit for the benefit he delivers to all his teammates, essentially. And you can flip it around. If you've got a right tackle who's having trouble with the edge rusher on his side and you have to bring a, a fullback over there to chip him, that should be that in your evaluation of that player, you should penalize him in some way. And yet it's really hard in our numbers to do those kinds of things, yet we know these things matter. I'd like to think the motion tracking is a technology that would allow us to get at that and, and 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 really improve player evaluation as a result. Do you do you have any sense of that? And and um, I'm curious if you've thought about that problem at all. I have, and um, I've talked a lot with Eric Eager. He's a PhD, who works at Pro Football Focus. He's got access to their entire grading database, which is a a decent proxy for what you're what you're asking um, in terms of what we're able to get at with player tracking data. You know, how can we? kind of quantify quality of the defensive performance or, or a guy who actually doesn't put up any kind of offensive stats like a left tackle. Um, for, for, for linemen, the grading process at PFF is actually quite good. It's, uh, it's both predictive in sample and out of sample. So, in other words, it's stable over time. If you give a guy a good grade at left tackle, it's, um, re- it's reasonably uh, stable and over time and such that he, you would expect him to have a good grade later. Uh, in the next season or the next game. Um, whereas with defensive players, what Eric found is that on a per play basis, much, much higher variance. And, hmm. and I think, and I think just intuitively you saw that with, um, Avante Maddox on, on the, uh, on the Eagles. He, uh, the, the Eagles game, uh, this past weekend, he, the beginning of the game, he made some incredible plays, almost made an interception by jumping the ball. Uh, and, the, and I think in the third quarter, he got burned on three straight plays, including a touchdown by Allen Robinson because of double moves. And so I think it's this this high variance aspect of playing defense where if, if you take one thing away, the offense is going to very quickly make you pay if you're over-eager, over-zealous uh, that's at interesting. taking that one thing away. Yep. And so it, it actually becomes optimal to just simply allow the norm to occur and to just protect against the, the, the horrible outcome, right? The, the, the big deep pass um, and then the long touchdown. And so defense becomes something that is just incredibly hard to quantify in a way that, uh, um, I mean, absent something like win probability, I yeah. think it's it, it, very difficult to do. You know, there's a difficulty to all of this, even back to your Schottenheimer analysis. You're looking at a sequence within a possession or within a series, and really that's not the objective, right? We're, what we need is the game. And sometimes teams are doing things in one series to set up what happens in another series. And it makes the unit of analysis very big and broad, which is hard for us because we need a big sample. So you can have a big, broad unit of analysis and a large sample. Those two things run against each other. But it means that you and I need to stay humble about these things, right? Because there are these it's, – it's hard to get at the real question, the real question, which is like what are they doing in this play to help them win the game? 
absolutely true. And um, yeah, I, I mean, you've, you've said it perfectly. I don't really can't uh, add too much to it. Josh, last question for you. Um, we'd like to hear a full breakdown of the games, but let's just jump to the end. How do you see the playoffs running out this year? Of the of the eight teams we have left, which two do you expect to end up in the Super Bowl? Um, not a very hot take. I, I like uh, a rematch of that wonderful game uh, that was supposed to be in Mexico City, um, the Rams and the and the Chiefs. I think that uh, if it does end up occurring, uh, that that's the Super Bowl. I think it'll be something crazy, like you know a thirty six to thirty five score with a, a two point conversion being the difference. It'll, uh, I, I just can't wait. I think that we've seen the most uh, prodigious offensive performance league wide in the history of the NFL this year, yeah. and, and I think. That would be uh, the exclamation point on the end of the season like that. <laughs> well, you're one of the chief apostles out there talking about the importance of offense. So you picked the two best offenses. That'd be that'd be spectacular. No doubt that would be spectacular. Listen, Josh, really appreciate you getting up early and joining us this morning. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Really appreciate you guys having me on. You bet. That was Josh Hermsmeyer. Josh is a football writer at 538, also founder of airyards.com. Airyards.com. You can follow him on Twitter. I recommend that you do, at Frisco Josh. That is three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have one quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Rolling into the last quarter of the show, just off the phone with Josh Hermsmeyer talking football analytics. We've been football all day long. Adi, you're such a good sport. There are other things we could talk about. But let's stay with it a little bit longer. It is coaching carousel season. We're seeing some moves in the college game. We're seeing some moves in the pro game. Some have been announced. Some are still underway. Anything catching your eye, Eric? I know your team's been active. Yeah, so, you know, the Buccaneers announced that they had signed Bruce Arians, obviously a very successful coach at many levels in the NFL. Uh, they Interesting, they hired Todd Bowles to be the defensive coordinator, historically great defensive coordinator. They hired Byron Leftwich to be the offensive coordinator. I did not know that. I didn't catch they, that last time. They part. did. So, Has, What's Leftwich's co- so former quarterback, of course. What's his coaching pedigree? The answer is I don't know, but I think he was an offensive coordinator. or I think I know he's been either you know a quarterback's coach or an offensive coach in the NFL. I don't remember exactly where he's been. I think most people think this is a good thing because, you know, obviously the Bucks have now quote-unquote committed to Jameis Winston going forward. And Bruce Arians is was a quarterbacks coach. He's known as a you know a guy that knows how to coach an offense. The strength of the Buccaneers team right now is clearly their offense. I mean, they were one of the top five offensive teams in the NFL. Unfortunately, they were one of the bottom five defensive teams in the <laughs> NFL. So I think most people think you know he'll be a stabilizing force. He's a winning coach, and most people it's, think it's been a good thing. You know, uh, an interesting question is how teams that aren't doing that well, main, their fans and their staff and even the players maintain optimism. I mean, how is it year after year from you know mediocre performance, a team, you can stay optimistic. And I've been through my own you know, times as a fan. One of the ways it happens are these coaching changes. It's like you can convince yourself of anything well, with the a Buccane- new coach. The Buccaneers are in a historically bad stretch, by the way. I mean, they've won one playoff game, I think, or none, since their Super Bowl victory against the Raiders and whenever that was, 2003 or something like that. They've, they're in a historically 
<laughs> bad stretch right is now. Is that historic for football to go 15 years without a playoff win? Or yeah, would you say a playoff win? I mean, historic is a little bit of a strong word because so many yeah. teams make the playoffs. So yeah, there's so much yeah. churn in, in the NFL. But of course, the Bucks are famous for their historic opening 0 and 26 record um, when they were expansion teams in but 76. There are eight teams that have coaching vacancies. Two are filled now. I guess the Packers uh, filled their coaching vacancy. Well, have the Cardinals not announced formally? Because the most interesting hire by far is the Cardinals going out there and getting Cliff Kingsbury, who was just oh, maybe fired. I'm of Cl- but maybe the Packers did as well. I thought the Packers, maybe I've got it wrong. Maybe the, I was th- I'm thinking of Kingsbury, so you're saying oh, the Cardinals the hired Card- him. The Cardinals, at least last I saw, the Cardinals were hiring him. And it is symptomatic of the league's obsession now in the last you know 15 minutes. All of a sudden, we have to have the latest, greatest offensive scheme. Yeah, I was just more thinking of if I was a coach, and let's say I was even Bruce Arians, and let's imagine you say he's the most high-profile person out there. Which of these eight jobs would he want? I would think if I were a coach right now of the Browns, Packers, Jets, Cardinals, Bengals, Broncos, Buccaneers, and Dolphins, which were the open jobs, I hate to It'd be the Browns. I don't want any of them. Are you No, no, the, the Browns. Browns. You want them because you would want the Browns because of the quarterback and the and talent the edge pool rusher. and all the draft picks that they've stockpiled. They've burned through some of those. I to know get the picks that the, I know, the but I'm they saying have. they were a they were and also I think they have clear stability. Well, this is at the, main, the quarterback this, position. Uh, Who's going to quarterback the Broncos next year? Right. Fair enough. How about the Dolphins? Okay, Who's I, th- their quarterback? I think this is a great question. I think it's a really interesting question, and you've put your finger on. Probably the most obvious answer. I'm not entirely sure it's the right answer. You're saying, I'm going to go where I have the greatest talent, or especially where I have the most stable quarterback. I mean, look, if you're a team in the NFL and you don't have your franchise quarterback, you think about how you're going to get your franchise quarterback every day of the year. During the season, off season, you obsess with this one question, and you know that you're waking up every morning without your franchise quarterback. So if you've got that piece, you're definitely a step ahead. However, Eric, I want to, and that may be the right answer. But I'm going to worry a lot about who is the general manager and above him or her, who is the owner. What's the ownership situation? I was just thinking of it as winning solves everything. If you don't have your franchise quarterback, let's say you're the Dolphins right now and you say, we need to win. Well, if Ryan Tannehill is not coming back and he's not the solution, there's an example. Let's say you bring someone in. Maybe it's a rookie quarterback. Maybe it's through the draft. You're thinking of at least a three-year rebuilding plan. So now you're a coach coming in and in a win-now league, if you're going to go into a team with a rookie quarterback, uh, the odds are you. I mean, as long as you have a commitment from no, the GM right. and the owner, no, you're right. If you have a f- commitment that you know what I, you know, uh, uh, Coach Massey, you've got three to five years to build this team. Don't let. That's fine. Then it matters. It's but just you're cheap just, talk, by the way. That is cheap, cheap talk. That's cheap it's talk. Cheap I mean, talk. What, what's the strategy when you do? You want to take three to five years, or do it in one to three? When do you take your quarterback? When you're at the bottom, do you do it early? Do you do it late? I mean, you take is it there, whenever you can. Get whenever, him. yeah, oh but you, but you don't know. I mean, the problem is that we were just talking about this with regard to say trying to swap out the say Tua or or Lawrence uh, uh, right now for any of the the other young quarterbacks who are playing. Would you do that? You don't know this. I mean, because so, right. quarterback is so unpredictable. I would guess. You, so, but you want, but you want you want that you want those you, you want, want that those roll shots. Dice. You want that shot. You want to be always have that shot. If you're stuck with someone you don't think is your, but it's going to take a couple of years to figure that out, right? Yeah, but so, you want him in the system. I mean, you've got it. If you don't have your quarterback now, you want who you think okay. might be your quarterback in the system. So, I what think, you're essentially saying is just let me, let me just, uh, just close this. If you have say three to five year of rebuilding, you take your quarterback right away, and then the next couple of years you want to. Uh, 
then fill out those other positions. Yeah, because it, 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 yeah. and it's you don't even want to more wait. general than that. It doesn't matter where you are, when you are. If you don't have your quarterback, you need to do whatever you can to get your quarterback. And, and you know, this is certainly the way teams think, and it's not clear to me that it's wrong because that piece is so fundamentally important. Maybe I'm overestimating the rate of your learning. You said it takes a couple of years. I'm pretty sure the Cleveland Browns are feeling pretty good about Baker Mayfield right now. Yeah. I think the Jets are feeling not bad about Sam Darnold. Yeah. I think those are the only... Like, Who took Rosen? That was the Cardinals. And they're feeling bad about it or what? They're feeling no, 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 unsure. No, they're unsure. Feeling, I mean, I'm sure is... the Bills with Josh Allen are feeling unsure. I'm sure the Ravens, although the Ravens did it at the end of the first round, the last pick of the first round, with Lamar Jackson, we even asked our, our callers today about Lamar Jackson. I'm pretty sure the Browns and the Jets are feeling pretty good about their choices right now. And I think they're thinking they do have their franchise yeah. quarterbacks. I think well, the Cardinals, unclear. The Bills, unclear. It's so interesting that, that Kingsbury is going to Rosen because he's got a, he's at least got a real high-end, raw quarterback there. We'll find out what he can do with him. But it's different than if he was going to a team without... You know, like I said, a role with without a dice on the table. He's got dice on the table on Josh Rosen. It's unproven, but there there still exists the potential that he is a, a strong NFL quarterback. There's the potential exists, and that's what you want. Well, that's right. why that's why I would say the Bengals, Broncos, and Dolphins are the worst job because I is mean, Tannehill they, is it that negative on Tannehill? And the Bengals have a good quarterback. He's just late. I guess late in his career. You think? I'm just saying, Andy Dalton. I'm not. I'm just saying, there's no more upside to Andy Dalton. Did you see him in the early part of the season? I mean, he looked. I mean, he looked phenomenal. The that offense looked great until he went down. Well, so again, we could uh, try to confound that with Marvin Lewis. Obviously, Andy Dalton, I think, has never won a playoff game. Right? Well, I know Marvin Lewis. I don't think won one with the Bengals. Maybe he won one playoff game. I mean, Andy Dalton has not been a great postseason quarterback. Do we overdo that? How many World Series did Greg Maddox win? A uh, couple. He, no, one. no, he won one. One, yeah. How many did they lose? A bunch. Exactly. <laughs> Actually, they didn't make the World they Series yeah, that often. Yeah. He didn't lose yeah, a so bunch. Post, and he has a postseason record. I love Greg Maddox has a losing postseason record. This is my point. And right. he's a phenomenal pitcher. This is my point. We overweight, I think, these postseason records. But so fair enough about the Bengals. I, I just think it's a really interesting question. If we could pose it more sharply, if you could go as a, new, as a coach, you're Kingsbury, say, and you can choose between an organization that doesn't yet have its quarterback, but it has great, respected, stable management and ownership, or an organization that has a quarterback but has questionable slash unstable management and ownership. Well, I want to know what you think on this one. I thought I, was gonna, I thought I was going to say, because I put so much priority on the quality of the ownership and, yeah. and management because it varies so dramatically. And in fact, there's just not very, there aren't that many well-run NFL teams. And so I would want to work for a well-run one. But Eric great, raises a great point. The the time frame, the window in the NFL and all professional sports is so short now. You may not get to see that second quarterback or the third quarterback. If you don't already have the guy that you want to run with, you may not make it around until you do. And so would I go to work for the Browns? I don't know. But you're right. that Mayfield would make you think real hard about it. What is, the, what is the germination period? I mean, if you take a look historically. Germination at, period, yeah, Adi. You know, how long does it take for them to blossom, right? If you look historically at great quarterbacks, when did Brady become a great quarterback? Well, when did it, all the great an interesting thing breeze, about quarterback it, germination period is that it seems to be accelerating. Quarterbacks are coming out so much more advanced. It accelerates at the college level. They are performing at a very high level much earlier than they used to, and that translates into the professional level. Look what Mayfield. Well, that's done. a great observation. It's and, definitely and accelerated, and it's partly because of what quarterbacks do. And as, as as kids, they, there's much more quarterback. Well, we're seeing this in baseball with pitchers. Is that right? Well, pitchers are starting. I mean. 
and hitters. I mean, but ba- there's a huge shift towards younger superstars right, in baseball. Right, right. And we, as we see now with the free agent draft, I hear I'm hijacking the conversation towards baseball. But the idea is that none of these superstars who were supposed to be all just, just, just you know, signed with huge contracts or even signed yet. Machado, Harper, okay. nothing. Why don't we, and, and, and that's because they're old. I mean, we thought Machado, they were see, this they're is 26, first. 27 years old and they are think and people generally have been thinking they're kind of started to go on the down. This is crazy. But and they want huge huge yeah, salaries want, of course. But ones. you're seeing these kids with these with incredible performances at 22. I was just commenting on the following. So let me answer your question the following way. Let's take the three teams that we mentioned. So Cardinals with Rosen, the Bills with Allen, and the Ravens with Lamar Jackson. Let's imagine all three of those quarterbacks have bad seasons this next season. I think you already think all three of those teams in two years will already be looking for the next quarterback. I, I agree with that, but I think you do have to give them that second year. That's no, a, no, that's I a, said I'm giving right. them their second year. But after that, if they if they don't get to it, I think they're going to be looking already for their next quarterback. I agree entirely. I just want to emphasize that second year importance because we know that the first year can be really rough. It's not always, and we're seeing exceptions now, but it can be really rough on a quarterback who even, even a, a quarterback who ultimately becomes very good. Peyton I'm, Manning's record, what was Peyton Manning's record in his in his freshman year in his, in his rookie year not good jared goff people thought jared goff who was, was a the bust number one pick in the he draft, was the number one pick when they was thought two. he was going to be a bust and interestingly it's, that one was not just about his personal development but it was about the coach and the system that he was in so it's not only about the player it's about the player being in the right you know place. who's in this who's also in a very strange position we talk about the one and two in the draft what do you do if you're the buccaneers with Jameis winston and what do you do if you're the titans with marcus mariota so are they franchise quarterbacks? So now these guys have been playing. I think they're both in their four. They've both played four years. I think that's that the all? right. I okay. think that's the right. These I'm are guys sure. who are. No, no. We they remember in the early years of Moneyball. Right. They, they were, drafted. They were the one and yeah, two. Right? Pick. Yeah. They, yeah sure. they were the one and two pick in the draft. So what do you do now where you're kind of in this limbo period? Like Winston's shown flashes of being good. Mariota has shown flashes of being good. But are those your franchise quarterbacks? It's almost like. You know, what do you do in this? That's right. There is a Bill Parcells. I was told that Bill Parcells used to have a phrase called a progress blocker. He would call a player a progress blocker if it was someone who was good enough mm-hmm. to play, but he wasn't great. And so you never felt like you should replace him because you it's could a great spend, term. spend your efforts elsewhere. Quarterbacks, man, you're right. You just put your finger on this. Especially those guys came out at the same time. I don't know. I don't know enough about those two guys. Mariota's been hurt a fair bit, right? And so yes. at some, you've got this other variable, like how how much is he actually going to be on the field? And at some point, well, is Wentz it persistent. Too. I mean, really, Wentz, yeah, for with, sure. With yeah, injury, yeah, I mean, for yeah. sure. That is a important. It's a really important question for Philadelphia. If they decide that Wentz is prone to injury and the Foles isn't. If that's true, and it's really hard to reach that conclusion, but if you were able to reach that conclusion, it would change, obviously, your calculus. You would trade wins and not fulls. How old is fulls? 29. And a quarterback does have a 35, 36. Apparently, you're not playing that, to but your termination. But Foles, is, <laughs> but, <that's, laughs> but Foles is also a young 29 in the sense yeah. that he hasn't had have the eight years yeah. of beating yeah. in the NFL. So, yeah. I mean, yes, he could easily play for five-plus more years. Someone, let me just say, I thought your idea was – Now's the time. The, I liked your argument. <laughs> trade him now where the trade value is never higher. Exactly. Sign him to a contract and then trade him or you know, franchise tag him and then trade him. And I, I think you would get a lot for him. You know, there's been some analysis lately about the, the, the value of the quarterbacks on their first contract and how many quarterbacks there are in the league who are paid large 
paid huge, taking up big chunks of the of the of the salary cap, salary cap, and yet aren't performing at that level because there was we went through this period where everybody had to be paid just a ton, and and everybody was looking for who's my quarterback, who's my quarterback, and so you've got all these guys on these big contracts that if they don't deliver, then it's this huge anchor on the team salary cap. So that if teams are learning that lesson, well, we talked about last week. Can you imagine right now if you're the Minnesota Vikings? And Kirk Cousins is your quarterback, and you've paid him $100 million. And we said this stat last week. Against winning teams in his career, at the time of the game, I checked, he's 4-24. and So <laughs> Okay, but hold on. He played for some lousy teams. We can't put that all on him. We've got to, we've got to normalize that for something. Yep, you've got to residualize for expected, yeah, but yeah, still, yeah. 4 and 24. I mean, he, no, he's not. No, still. No, I'm, I mean, I You don't know. think the expected number of wins is 10 out of those 28 games? 10 and 18, he should have been? Yeah, His expected know. number of wins isn't 10. He played for the Redskins for a long time. Man. I know, but the Redskins weren't a well, zero you know, win team. The Redskins won at least a third of their games. That would be nine two, or 10 wins. This tees out two things. And, we, and this relates to something I said earlier. It doesn't. What Kate is essentially saying is it doesn't forecast that valuable. Yeah. In other words, the fact that he did badly against better teams doesn't necessarily mean he's going to do badly in the future against bad, mm-hmm. against good teams. On the other hand, historically, he didn't do very well. Okay, but listen, <laughs> so, a lot of that was known when they signed so, right. him. And Kirk Cousins was like the gem of the free agent class last right. year, and all of a sudden we've changed our mind. I mean, I mean we're, it, we're either it, dumb now or dumb. I have a question: Is football going through the same thing or that baseball is, which is these free agents are just not as valuable as we've seen in the past? It well, the question's being raised. That's exactly right. And but you, but you got teams in a real quandary. Then what are you supposed to do? Because there are only so many quarterbacks in the draft, and draft draft quarterbacks are highly uncertain. I mean, hell, Eric was just hitting the Bears for Trubisky, and he was the third quarterback taken, or whatever he was that year. I mean, he was a, it was as good a pick as you could hope for, really. And when did he, he go? What, what what position eight, in the draft? Eight or something? Who was seven? This? Trubisky. Yes, somewhere somewhere in that range. And what, so what we're saying is you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. It's it, I think mostly the answer is get lucky. The real key here is to get lucky. And if you can't get lucky with – I mean, look, the Colts – how did the Colts have both the first-round pick the year that Peyton Manning came out and a generation later when Andrew Luck came out? That is that is just – that's the best you could hope for in terms of the gods being nice to you. And that's that's probably the, the only thing you can count on is a formula for success. All right. We need to consider this playoff round. Moneyball matchups. All right, Bradlow, walk us through it, man. What do you got? Well, I was going to. I have to go with the Chargers Patriots game. Um, I'm going to say. In what sense? This is where your biggest pick is. Are like the most interesting? Or I think the game is the most interesting because, again, I haven't felt for the last six or eight weeks of the season that Tom Brady's been that good. And so I think the Chargers are a very good team. I think they're a well-balanced team. I think they can run the football. Obviously, we know that uh, Phillip Rivers can throw the football. They've been one of the better defensive teams in the NFL this year. So I'm picking the Chargers upset All of right. the Patriots now, this week. That's the shortest line on the board. It's only a four-point line, but you say... Uh, I, I think don't... the Chargers outright win. Good. All and right. I'm going to, you know, if if one were a betting man, I'm going to see what the Chargers are on the money line in that game. All right. How are you? Okay, well, I'd like your, your pick, and I would go for that, but I'd be boring. So I'm going to actually <laughs> go back to an earlier comment you made about the Colts being 11-1 and one in the last uh, 12, or 10-1 and one in the last uh, 
11 games. 11 and 1, including the playoffs. Including yeah. the playoffs. And I think that's actually meaningful. And not because of momentum, because of non stationarity. And I think it is that they're taking, giving them 5.5 5. 5 points is worth taking. All right. So, five and a half point line. Not to win, but definitely you, to cover. To cover. You, you, and, and, and maybe, I mean, they could, they could eke it out. That's interesting. So, on the on the Chargers Colts, Massey Peabody's right on top of the market line there. We also see it as about a four point game. So the shortest line on the board. On What's the, your biggest difference? Are there any mis? Yeah, which one's the biggest difference? We got we have big differences on both the NFC games. So we don't think the favorites there are favored by enough. Is the short answer. not even by enough? So what's the you know, the Rams Cowboys would be what? So we have Rams Cowboys as the the market is seven, and we make the Rams like eleven and a half. With so the home field. With home field and with the buy. Those are both advantages. And four and a half point difference is a is a is getting up there. It um, is. It it approaches the difference well, that we saw with if you the, like that with Clemson, but it's not at the it's not at the zero. It's not at the Kate's saying you ain't seen nothing yet. Well it's a little bit bigger in New Orleans where the market line is eight. And we make it 12.8. So we have about a 4.8 edge, a little bit bigger than the Rams. If you're but making it, 10 bets, that's one you want. Well, so this is these are these are not small edges. Those are real yep. edges. We we think those teams, they're both they're the two best teams in the league according to our numbers, and not close. So we have the the Saints number one at plus ten, and that's about two points better than the Rams at plus eight. But that again is two points better than the Bears, and then three than the Chiefs. So those two teams are really head and shoulders above, and they have home field. And they had to buy last weekend. Yeah, the argument you'd have to make to pick the Eagles, Cowboys are a hard argument. With the Eagles would be either St. Nick or you'd have to make non-stationarity. It's not the same Eagles team. The Eagles, by the way, have won, I think, six out of their last seven games. Yeah. So you'd have to make the argument the real Eagles have finally shown I'm, up. Well, I'm rooting for the Eagles. I'm not picking them. <laughs> It'd be fun. I mean, who doesn't want Foles to keep this score Absolutely. going? Absolutely. Can't wait. Uh, who else? Who, what are the other rooting interests? And just in the last few seconds, who else are you following with your heart here? I want to see Mahomes and the Chiefs. I think the Mahomes is just too great a story not to keep. Let's see some more of that. Showtime. <laughs> you don't want. You don't, you, the other would be Andy Reid. Does Andy Reid finally get yeah, to the Super Bowl and win the Super yeah, Bowl? Yeah. Why not? He's why, been a great coach. He's been very influential. Very and, and influential. Why not give him the, the capstone here as well? All right, guys. That has been another Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. We do it every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10. Appreciate you joining us. Thanks to Matty Dats, boss, boss man for keeping us on on the straight and narrow. Thank you for Daniel Brino. Thank you to Dion Simpkins listening in the back with the box of bonbons. This has been Kate Massey, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.